Morning, Pip. Good morning, Carl. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you good. How about me? Oh, yeah. No, I can hear you great. Yeah. Okay. I, this is a good old technology. Yes, it is. It's very, very simple to use these podcasts. Uh, it's part of what's called uh, Anchor. And yeah. There are several different platforms. People listen to me on Apple. They listen to me on, on various platforms, Spotify, for example. Okay. So I want to welcome you to the podcast, The Life and Biography. And um, we're going to be discussing your book, Gay mm -hmm. Faulkner. And I want to quickly mention the subtitle, Uncovering a Homosexual Presence in Yaknapatafa and Beyond. And we'll talk about, I think, why you came up with that subtitle. But before we talk about the book in particular, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how, how you how you came to write about Faulkner. <laughs> wow. Uh, how, how much time do we have here? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have an um, hour if we need it. Yeah. Yeah. OK. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so, yeah. So um, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, grew up in West Tennessee, uh, just outside of Memphis, a little town called Jackson. Um, and when I was in high school, I. I, I heard about this guy named William Faulkner. We we actually never were assigned reading Faulkner, uh, anything by Faulkner in class, but I just, I heard he wrote about North Mississippi and I was just curious. I started reading it and I just felt, I just felt like I recognized a great many of the people in his novels um, just because of, of my own family history and where I'm from. So that got me interested in Faulkner. Then in undergrad, I read more Faulkner um, and became sort of, infatuated with them, you might say, very, very curious about, about about his writing. And I always sort of tell the story that I was in a an American literature class. We were reading Absalom, Absalom, and the professor was asking us, you know, just round table discussion questions. And I, I just started explaining that, well, obviously, since Faulkner was gay, that's why we can read so much about the homosexual relationship between Quentin and Shreve. And I went on and on for a few minutes and the professor let me finish. It was a very, he was very nice. Uh, but after I was done, he just sort of said, yeah, okay. Except Faulkner wasn't. I was like, really? I could have fooled me. Um, and that, that moment of trying to figure out why I had such a profound impression yeah. of, of Faulkner's, of Faulkner's writing feeling like it was written by someone who was a homosexual versus well, that, this ar this argument that he's not was that really instigated this like years long quest to actually research a book and see what I could make of it. I I uh, uh, I can see that <laughs> the, the 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 bond uh, between uh, Quentin and Henry, and also between in the Harvard dormitory room Quentin yep. and Shreve. I mean, this has been noticed. You know, you yeah. weren't out of out of line. You didn't know about Faulkner's biography, but that's a very, you know, that's that's very a very interesting um, uh, response to a book, uh, because people when read books, you know, they they often uh, they make up a biography of an author if you see yeah. them. And sometimes when they read a biography of that author, they're they're deeply disappointed because, <laughs> because you know it doesn't. And then they're deeply, or they're deeply disappointed in the biographer for point, pointing out things that just don't match what they thought that yeah. writer was about. You know, I I I mean, I I guess I originally had that impression with Faulkner, uh, especially because I I mean, it was my first semester in graduate school at the University of Mississippi that I immediately enrolled in the Faulkner seminar they offer there with Don Cartaganer, 
um, who is an, an, in ways a very awesome Faulkner teacher. His his fingerprints are all over um, the book uh, in terms of just his scholarly approach. Simultaneously, a lot of it was an antagonistic relationship between me and Don Cardiganer and his notion of Faulkner's biography, which he could lecture on at great length um, a day one of class for our, for our you know, two hour seminar. He just sat there with no notes and told us this incredibly well-structured um, linear chronological biography of Faulkner. And it was brilliant. And I was like, I want to do this one day. I, I want to be able to do this in a classroom one day. Um, but of course, it wasn't the biography that I that I was expecting. And I began investigating at that point, you know, reading Blotner, uh, originally the one volume Bl uh, Joseph Blotner biography, and then going through the other biographies, um, just sort of trying to find little kernels that could suggest an entry point for my own work uh, into Faulkner's life beyond just reading possible queer themes into the literature itself. Um, so yeah, and <laughs> it, it was a long, it was a long, it was a long, a long uh, journey uh, to finally find archives and stuff to could dig around in to see what I could find there. So when you, when you say it was a long journey, how long? So I started the, I really, I started in earnest knowing that I wanted to write a long project when I started my master's degree back in 2006. Um, and I originally was going to be not a biographer at all to whatever extent my, my work's informed by biography. I was just going to be a queer theorist who was going to use some very esoteric French theory to argue for some strange meanings of words or something like that in this very high, high, highbrow theoretical way. And I was determined to write the book that way for a solid five years until Jamie Harker, my dissertation director, said, okay, have you ever considered going to an archive? Have you ever considered just like <laughs> looking around in the biography? Um, and I had been to a conference at Southeast Missouri State University, um, which is where Blotner's papers are. Um, Bob Hamblin there had, had been able to purchase those and put them in their Faulkner Center there. Uh, and I knew they were there and I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. Um, and then that began a year long process of making a few research trips there when I had some funding and some time and just sitting in a room and reading all of those materials. Uh, I think you did this too, Carl. I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I think it makes all the difference. Oh, uh, and it, there were so many times I would get back to the hotel at night and I would just write these long, like, incredibly enthusiastic emails to to my dissertation director and my committee like you'll never believe what i found today this is so cool uh, and, and they would they would sort of nod and say oh, okay keep working you know but yes yeah, it's just yeah. really wonderful stuff there so that that's exactly my experience and in fact what you're describing is what happened to me it's how i became a biographer that is mm -hmm. Uh, I started to write a um, what was called a bio bibliography of Marilyn Monroe, and it was supposed to be just a biographical essay, and then a discussion of all the other books and articles and things that had been written about her. And I started doing that, uh, and I wasn't satisfied. Mm. Uh, there was there was something missing in the accounts of her. Part of it had to do with my training as an actor and the fact that I felt none of the biographers. Uh, or journalists who had covered her life understood what it meant to her to be an actress. And that's when I went in search of a record. There was, there was an archive, actually a biographer's archive at University of Texas at Austin, but more importantly, 
talking to the people she worked with. And one of the things that I learned, which is, which is I think what someone will learn from reading your book, is it doesn't matter how many biographies there have been of William Faulkner, or in this case of Marilyn Monroe, the fact is, even though it's there, it's in print, you know, someone reads a biography and they say, well, okay, now I know about William Faulkner or whoever it might be, it looks fixed. Yeah. You know, it, it, and, and what you show is it's not fixed. It's, it's not stable. Now, this alarms some people, and I think that's why they find biography very disturbing. But that's what you've done in Gay Faulkner, is in, to a certain extent, and here I'm talking about someone who's written a two-volume yeah. biography of Faulkner. <laughs> but I still want to say that when someone reads your book, what it's going to do is it's going to destabilize them. And when that happens, some people are, and, and you maybe you've already experienced this, some people are going to be very unhappy with you, Pip. <laughs> So it's interesting you bring that up. I've had that question about Faulkner scholars and other people who have been lifelong um, uh, Faulkner fans, for lack of a better word. Uh, and I, I was I was expecting a pushback and I was worried that I would have more pushback to the book uh, than I have had. And so I've had the question oftentimes, like when people encounter this work, have you gotten a negative reaction I think on uh, I I have stories from the Faulkner Conference every year in Oxford, Mississippi, where I've heard people not terribly pleased with queer readings of Faulkner, to say the least, <laughs> and, uh, to, to put it mildly. And yeah. and you know, and some and some of the uh, from the '90s and early 2000s, uh, some of the work that was trying to queer Faulkner, I have some, some bones to pick with that with that work. But once the book came out, once it was physically there. Uh, as a book from an academic press that has you know gone through a vetting process, um, I've had a remarkably good response. And I really, with the exception of like one or two people like who aren't even academics as far as I know, to sort of a couple troll trolling comments on a Facebook post or something, uh, has not just been a ambivalent response, but has been a very positive response to to the work. Uh, and this, by the way, I would you know think about what biography is. Uh, if I had written the book from the perspective of a queer theorist who had just done a deep dive in the literature alone and then used Michel Foucault or Eve Sedgwick or Judith Butler to make some queer theory argument, it might have been a good academic book, but I think it would have been much easier to dismiss by finding archival materials, by thinking about Faulkner's life and just the way we tell stories about it. That, to me, is what makes the book come together in a much stronger project. I think you're right. And I think by going into the archive, and by the way, um, I don't know, have you been to Texas? I've not. I have some interesting stories about Texas, like really awesome stories, because I had to go through a, I had to go through the mail with them. And I ended up being put in contact by just dumb luck with an archivist there named Jen Shapland, who has recently written her own somewhat biographical memoir-esque study of Carson McCullers querying Carson McCullers. It right. was yeah. weird kind of like, it was weird that the two of us had that interaction, but, uh, but I haven't been to Texas. I, I wanted to mention this yeah. because uh, as with the Blotner papers, as huge as Blotner's two volumes are, and then the one volume follow-up, mm -hmm. he left a lot out as you show oh. in your book, Blotner left a lot of interesting things out. 
And Collins, of course, never wrote his biography, but he, he spent more than 40 years accumulating material. And he's got long correspondence with people like William Odeorn. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, in other words, gay figures in Faulkner's life that I think would, you know, would really be of some interest to you. <laughs> that, that, thanks, Carl. I, I think now I have a new project. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I um, so when I, when I was in grad school, well into the PhD, um, had I had already uh, made plans to get up to Southeast Missouri State, but uh, I applied one summer for a one month long research fellowship at the, uh, the the Harry Ransom Center there in Austin, Texas, and sort of rushed rushed my applications and and didn't get approved, and that happens. Uh, it was just sort of a, a normal thing that can happen for when you're in grad school. So I ended up having to reach out by email. And I, I just asked them to look up a few a few basic documents that I was able to find in there, you know, by, by pulling it up online when what some of their archives were. But I was assigned a research fellow there, uh, an intern, actually, uh, named Jen Chaplin. Uh, and she she asked me a few questions about the project. And what she ended up doing was going outside of the Faulkner, the official Faulkner papers there, she actually uh, looked up some of the other names of people I was trying to connect to Faulkner, such as Hubert Creekmore. And she found out that I, I guess the archive they have there in Austin, Texas has to do with Grove Press, whom um, I think that might be the press, who Creekmore had worked for, at least as sort of an editor for a while. Uh -huh. And as such, they had a bunch of letters from him to other authors and they had some really awesome photographs of him, uh, publicity shots. But one of the letters they had is, it's one I actually feature in uh, in the book towards the end, is a letter from Hubert Creekmore to Phil Stone asking for that recommendation letter from William Faulkner to Faulkner's publishers in New York. Um, and that was a real, a real revelation moment about uh, Hubert Creekmore in 1948 would write a famous, well, semi-famous, <laughs> a gay novel set in Water Valley, Mississippi. And finding out that Creekmore knew Faulkner uh, was the start of one of the best journeys in the archive. Because then when I went up to the Blotner papers in Southeast Missouri, the name Creekmore shows up relatively often because Hubert Creekmore's older brothers were, were classmates of Faulkner's. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. See, there's an awful lot there. There are things that Faulkner just never said, for mm -hmm. example, uh, that you can by looking in the archives and it takes, you know, it takes time, it takes money sometimes. Mm. Uh, it's it's a, it's a lot of work. One of the things I was thinking about and you're describing your response to the book and one of the reasons why I think you've gotten a, by and large a positive response is it's so clearly written. It's also a in a way, a study of the other biographies. And I'm not aware of very many Faulkner critics other than, you know, when biographies are reviewed. I've not very seen very many Faulkner critics look at the biographies as texts, which you need to take apart in some ways and to read things uh, that the biographer simply passes by, doesn't seem to notice but are there sometimes on the page or sometimes in the archive. Yeah. So when I was kind of in the, in the thick of writing the book actually is right around the time Jay Perini's biography had just been published. I think what one matchless time I think was the most recent mainstream biography and Judith Sensabar right towards the end of my, my graduate work published Faulkner in love, which is 
a different kind of biographical study, obviously, of the women in Faulkner's life. Um, and both both of those coming out sort of impressed upon me the way in which my own work is sort of interacting with uh, sort of the big the big Faulkner biographies. Um, in my dissertation, which eventually was edited to become the book, I had a much longer introduction where I talk at length about those biographies, starting with Blotner's two-volume version to his one-volume version, but also Frederick Carl's um, one-volume version, which is still a tome in its own right. But yeah. then actually moving into the biographies that are well, I'm calling them biographies. They are they're biographical in nature, but they also move to literary studies, such as Joel Williamson's William Faulkner in Southern History, um, and Sensabar's Faulkner in Love, and other folks who have who have done work to intervene, not to necessarily retell all of Faulkner's life in detail, but to pick up individual strands of Faulkner's life and trace those strands through through his life and how they particularly influenced him. And I spent some time in that introduction, which eventually got cut and reduced to a three-page intro in the real in the book. Um, spent some time in that introduction, placing my work within that context of these sort of interventions into biography that don't. I mean, I mean, Blotner's biography is great. The date that William Faulkner was born is, does not seem to be in question. I'm not trying to challenge that, <laughs> uh, but uh, but that there are ways in which these other biographies are their own subgenre. Uh, within yes. Faulkner studies. And it was a lot of fun to think about that. And so, yeah, it was a big influence on my book, just thinking about reading the biographies as text in their own right. Well, now, now I have to read your dissertation. No, 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 no. That's okay. <laughs> well, I, at least the part about the biographers, I'm, I'm fascinated with that. It's, that's sort of one of my interests is how biographers develop their story and, you know, how a subsequent biography fits into the history of biography that's, that's already been written. Uh, yeah, I, and I, uh, I've, I've chatted sometimes with Bob Hamlin, who is, and he was the director of the Center for Faulkner Studies at Southeast Missouri, who helped acquire the Blotner Papers. He's since retired, um, but I've, I've joked with him about wanting to write a biography of the biography. Um, if, if I had but world enough in time, I would love yeah. to spend a year sitting at, at their archives and just look at Blotner's work, his letters that he was writing, seeking information. And just think about how he how he went from knowing William Faulkner in the 1950s uh, to getting Estelle to agree to make him uh, an author, a quote unquote authorized biographer. Um, and then the process of writing the first two volume edition and the countless letters he wrote trying to find William Faulkner's actual military history and the failed attempt there. Right. Um, and then the, the arrival of new letters in the mid 70s and, and early 80s from individuals who were correcting details from the original bio, the two volume biography that he then of course spins into the one volume biography. And I've, I, I found myself just sort of endlessly fascinated. And to say the least, I, I put down my childish interest in really advanced theoretical approaches to queer identities and thought this is way more fun. <laughs> so. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, I want to read a page from your book to give the, the listeners some some idea of instead of just talking about the book, actually have them hear your voice. Uh, and I want to say a few things about this page, which you know strike me as a biographer. This is from uh, page twenty-eight. You're discussing Ben Wasson's memoir, 
about Faulkner and the title is Count No Count. Faulkner was given this name, sort of ridiculed mm -hmm. for the what some students felt, some people in the community felt was putting on airs and so on. So while not really having a job or doing, not seeming to do much. So he was called Count No Count. Ben Wasson was gay. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, and I think the biographies acknowledge that uh, mine certainly does. Mm. Uh, and I was intrigued certainly by uh, Falker's uh, friendship with Wasson and maybe it was more than a friendship. We don't really know. The word that you use that just really hit me between the eyes is when you use the word courtship. Yeah. That, that Faulkner was courting Watson. It's a word I never would have used. I'm not shocked by the word. I don't think the word's inappropriate. It really makes the reader think about what was he doing with Ben Watson? Why was he living with William Spratling in New Orleans and so on? What did that mean? Uh, and we'll get to that in, in a moment, but I want to read this page uh, from uh, your quoting Wasson's memoir here. Wasson is saying he's on, on the University of Mississippi campus, uh, quite, quite a young man. A few days later, my special senior friend stopped me on campus as I was hurrying to class. And the friend says, saw the Count, meaning Faulkner, in town yesterday. You know what he said about you? Man, alive. Watson says, what? said you look like a young Galahad who's just gotten off a rocking horse. I told you he's nuts. And that's, that's the passage from Wasson. Now, I haven't gone back to look at what Fred Carl or other biographers do with this, but they certainly don't do with it what you do. You go on to say, Wasson never explains why the senior friend from the previous anecdote, this friend who had adopted Wasson, why this um, uh, senior friend has become over the course of a few days, a special senior friend. Remember, you know, Wasson was writing at a time when you, most uh, men didn't, didn't come out, mm. identify themselves as gay. So th this is why we're curious, of course, about special senior friend. Uh, that the cutting recognition of a few days prior has become special is highly suggestive. But Wasson, magnificently opaque, I think it's one of the wonderful things about your book, is you're constantly pointing out, you know, there's a lot left out here that people don't seem to understand. Wasson, magnificently opaque, leaves the word to hang in the sentence, alliterative but undefined. He does, though, admit that I took Faulkner's remark as a compliment. The, I'll read the, the word again. A young Galahad who's just gotten off a rocking horse. How could he not have? This is you. Faulkner's comment describes a carved boyish, boyish face on the body of the sexually purest knight of Camelot. In this version, the rocking horse becomes a positive reference to his youthful beauty, not a slight on his immaturity. Furthermore, by adding the passage of time for the patient and star-crossed lovers to communicate with each other via messenger, Wasson takes a loaded exchange and puts it in the terms not of male bravado and challenge, but of knightly courtship a la Castiglione. I mean, I just get chills when I read this stuff. <laughs> Thank that you, Carl. That's very complimentary. so interesting. 
Next paragraph, and then I'll stop. Given Wasson has already established his literary pretensions, he reads poetry and highbrow books just as Faulkner write, we can read this literary reference in its most purely literary way as a high court romance with shades of Arthurian chivalry. According to Wasson, Faulkner described him as an idealized beauty, all the more for his sexual purity. Wasson stages this meeting and Faulkner's compliment in terms of high romance. It is a courtship. In fact, it even occurs over time, not in any immediate passing moment and requires a messenger to exchange a message between the two quotation marks lovers separated by time and distance. Whether or not these were the actual words exchanged between these men is suspect. This is where we come back to the instability of what we're relying on in biography. Whether the actual words exchanged between these men is suspect, but what we are left with as the truth of the story is that Wasson and Faulkner from their earliest meeting deeply understood each other. They can communicate on this high literary and courtly level but the special senior can only exclaim, I told you he's nuts. So buried within this is the uncomprehending nature of the community that Faulkner's in and by implication helps us to understand why he's attracted to Wasson. So I think when I was when I when I was writing that passage and I was thinking about Wasson's relationship with Faulkner is when I was really drawing an awful lot um, on sort of in a way my own biography is coming out in the in the rural South um, of a hundred years later, but nonetheless you know uh, somewhat in the same vicinity of, of where Wasson and Faulkner were and thinking a lot about the notions of like what is it that people understand or know about queer identities and how they are enacted and performed um, and what people expect and are looking for when they're looking for identities? Are, are we looking for a scene where Wasson and Faulkner are, are caught committing some lascivious act or there's love letters with, with graphic de descriptions of sexual, of, of sexual desire versus what's going on between these two men is definitely more than just the average friendship that Faulkner is experiencing. Um, and there, there's a whole series of, of, of literary men who are sometimes very obviously aligned with queer identities, sometimes less so, um, from before Faulkner's time in Oxford till afterwards. And these are the people who Faulkner gravitated towards, um, even including Phil Stone, who I... I disagree with the reading that Phil Stone was a gay man who was secretly closeted. Nonetheless, he was a very literate man who introduced Faulkner to a great deal of incredibly important literature. And if nothing else, that's what the bond was between Faulkner and him that has had scholars sometimes ask aloud whether or not there was something going on between the two of them. And with Wasson, I just feel like there's such a a celebration. I don't know if that's yeah. the right word here of of the of this of this connection that they had instead of a rivalry where they're trying to one up each other by showing who knows more poetry or who knows more of the classics. Well, um, yeah. so you know what uh, this idea uh, Faulkner's niece had this idea and other people had this idea in Oxford that Phil Stone was closet closeted mm -hmm. gay. Uh, if he. I, the way I would put it is he's he's not gay in the sense of we, we know that he's gay 
in any sexual sense, but he stood out. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they thought he was queer. You say at the beginning of the book, you know, Faulkner was called a queer. Yeah. Uh, and you could take the word queer as simply being strange, you know, unlike other people, or, or you can, you can, uh, you, you can use it as, as a way of naming someone's sexual identity. And the two, I think, in Oxford kind of got mixed up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's where one place in the book where, where I, I somewhat show that I, you know, will still be the, the, the capital Q, capital T queer theorist is in, and is in unpacking the history of that word queer, which is, is in a very uh, open state at that moment. It is becoming very much in an American English lexicon. Um, a word specifically used to diagnose homosexuality. Simultaneously, it's a much older word than that that can have so much more meaning. So it becomes a place where, as a scholar, you can you know, play around a bit and read multiple levels into it, um, especially uh, because, and I'm, I'm sure you, you're aware of this as one of the Faulkner's biographers, one of the early stories about Faulkner doesn't call him queer it calls him and they always spell the word differently to catch like that southern inflection they call him queer yes. uh, and they'll spell it q-u-a-r-e or q-u-a-i-r um and and then later in college you'll see the stories always use the spelling we're more familiar with queer and losing that accent um and then you know by the time the 1930s and stuff roll around and the word begins appearing more and more in his own fiction it's just queer but i'm i'm just absolutely fascinated by the way that word has so much so much so much meaning uh so many different levels of meaning and how it can become a site uh for for play that i i cannot i just cannot i can't i can't believe i can't believe that that faulkner would be unaware of how multi multi-level that word can be Yes, someone so sensitive to language. Oh, and its yeah. Implications. It's, it's, it, yeah, it, for sure. Um, you use a word throughout the book. It's partly what ties your sense of Faulkner together. The word is apocryphal. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so Faulkner famously has that line. Um, and for some reason, I'm drawing a Yeah, it's from, I believe, the the his interview with G, with Stein in the Paris yes. Review. Yeah. Uh, where he talks about his postage stamp of native soil and the moment when he realized he could write about this fictional Yoctabatafa County that feels at times so eerily similar to the real Lafayette County, um, but is not the real Lafayette County. There's reams and reams of scholarship and understanding sort of that, that shift. But he specifically calls that shift a shift from the actual to the apocryphal. He, and he uh, uses the word sublimating. Yeah. Which is really oh. interesting to me. Oh, and yeah, that that passage is, I mean, it's certainly a passage that has been picked over by scholars of Faulkner, but it just keeps sort of a, new meanings can always be picked out of there because of how much, how much, how many levels of meaning are in those words and that it does so perfectly encapsulate his ability to make ho-hum day-to-day life in a small town in the South into something so much more. And I would I would argue this is what people like Garcia Marquez and Toni Morrison in, intuitively recognize in Faulkner's fiction that makes it so appealing all these years later. Um, but um, with Faulkner and that idea of apocryphizing, um, and I, I make it into a verb at times, to the, the word apocryphal, to, to make apocryphal, apocryphize, I, I don't think that's an actual word in the English language yet. Um, um, but the idea of taking what is the real even self and making it into something that is 
and you, you have to kind of like look at it a bit slant to quite to quite see it right and may or may not be real because we can we can't quite prove it but we also when we see it we recognize something there i, I frankly i was even thinking about the idea of the apocrypha from the bible the yes. books we can't prove well at least at, at least in the in, in olden times where they were able to prove that they were um, necessarily written by by the by people who knew uh, who knew Jesus or the other apostles, but also the apocrypha was rejected to an extent because it was seen as not kind of almost a heresy. It didn't it didn't align with our notion of what we what what early scholars, uh, biblical scholars, wanted to believe was going to be the message of an early Christian church. So on the one hand, in in Blotner's in Blotner's papers, the material that was left out is actual apocrypha. It also is material that in that could be construed as reading a very different truth into Faulkner's life. And in Faulkner's own life, we know that he was engaged in a long process of taking whatever was really going on in the world and and moving it into this realm of apocrypha that <clears throat> that is the jump in his creative in his creative thinking that I think is is what makes him fundamentally what makes him such a great writer. And I've I've, I've spent a lot of time on that. Also, that I spent. A ridiculous amount of time unpacking that word and that long introduction to the dissertation that that got that got cut on the cutting room floor when the book finally turned into something more viable. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and how, in response to this apocrypha, and to strikes me after reading your book too is uh, Faulkner's. Um, he had this supreme confidence about himself, <laughs> uh, you know, so that he. he you know, associating with gay men didn't, you know, I can't find anything in Faulkner where he's at all embarrassed or ashamed or uh, homophobic in any way. It's, it's just not there. And in the early short stories, there's practically a celebration of it. And there's a great, there's a great deal of scholarship about Faulkner's writing. And to an extent, it, it leaks into the biographies, the notion that generally Faulkner was greatly anxious about sexuality. But I agree with what you say there, Carl, that I read into Faulkner when when, 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 when the biographer is not staring at him, when he's not there believing he's being recorded by a journalist or someone like that, when stories emerge that he didn't necessarily know were going to be recorded years later, I see. I do. I agree. We see a very confident man who feels at one with himself, at peace with himself, who feels confident around around gay men in particular, and rarely exhibits the kind of anxiety that people feel permeates well, his text. So that's what amazed me when I when I read a few pages in your book where you're dealing with this collection of, of criticism, Faulkner's sexualities, and you're quoting a critic who's who uses this anxiety model that mm -hmm. Faulkner's anxious. It, it seems to me it says more about the critic than it does about Falk. I mean, I was absolutely amazed. It never even occurred to me that Falker was anxious about homosexuality. I just don't see it. I, I, I like that because in a way it brings us back to my earlier statement about like just, just frankly explaining it in an English class at, at, as an undergrad that of course Faulkner was gay because blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and a teacher said, well, he wasn't. But sort of the like, readers of Faulkner who, I don't know, on some level, I think when you read Faulkner and as you said, you, you start reading a biography and it doesn't live up to what you are looking for because you've read the work and you're just like, no, this is someone who is confident, who's not overridden with anxiety. So why are these other narratives, the ones that are emerging 
in the versions of his life that are being officially told. Um, and so to me, yeah, part of the process of writing this book and, and also because I do enjoy reading sort of biographies, especially biographies that are specifically interventions into a, into a longer sort of biographical tradition is looking for those places where someone just sort of says, wait a minute, why are we reading it this way? What about, what about these details? Um, and I just find that fascinating. And I, I love that as a, as a, as a mode of, of telling, this is where I think about Joel Williamson, where he, rather than sit around and wonder about, you know, Faulkner and uh, all the references to uh, miscegenated relationships, he actually goes back and digs up, like quite literally digs up and unearths the fact that there is actually a black Faulkner family that it is almost impossible to imagine Faulkner didn't know about. Um, and it's amazing that it takes Williamson, a historian, mm -hmm. you know, after all yeah. these years of writing about Faulkner uh, to find all this material. Well, and I, I, again, early on in the process of, of moving towards going to the, the, the archives and thinking more about biography, another thing I did was, I mean, I was going to school at Oxford, Mississippi. I drove over to Ripley. And when you drive to Ripley, you literally 30 yards away are the tombstones of that Black Faulkner family. And you, they're in a direct line with the giant, the, the giant monument to Faulkner's great-grandfather. Yes. Uh, and, you're, and you're just sitting here like this. Uh, kind of metaphorically is what I'm speaking of here. You're, you'll just stand there at one and look at the other and realize like it's right here. It's not like it was hidden. So why does it take so long for somebody to come forward and say, well, did you see this? Uh, you know. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. And Faulkner never acknowledged, uh, not just acknowledge a black family, but he never acknowledged even the possibility uh, yeah. in, you know, in his in his biography, it strikes me uh, it's like that early short story of his in an Italian mountain town where yeah. uh, people will not talk. You know, they won't talk about what they really know. And he knows this from having grown <laughs> up in the South, that there are all these, in a sense, open secrets that people won't mm. talk about. Well, and I, I guess I think about that with William Faulkner and the things that people won't talk about were the, the times in his own life when a, when, when a biographer would approach him. And uh, usually, of course, at that point in much sort of lower, more low key, like introductory materials, uh, like Malcolm Cowley approaching him to want to write the portable Faulkner and to find some biographical information. And the exchange between Faulkner and Cowley, where Faulkner is basically like, please stop telling people about my life. I really don't want them. <laughs> and Callie doesn't realize it's because Faulkner has been lying all this time and doesn't want to get discovered. Um, so, or his famous statement, what he wrote the books and he died, I think is what yeah. he wrote on his tombstone. Like he seems in his own life to, uh, to have, have really sort of shunned the notion of someone unpacking his, his sort of inner self. So maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a bad person as a biographer for like devoting myself to that. But um, because of that, I think that there's a lot of stories that become like the official stories of Faulkner. But in, when you actually start looking at Faulkner and try to like look at him and find letters that he wrote or, or really kind of understand when you're reading these sort of hearsay second person accounts about, of something that Faulkner did, there's always a sense that Faulkner is, the, the Faulkner being described may not be like the real Faulkner that yeah. you have to look for the ways in which he's performing a part, but he's performing it so well that the person telling the story is completely convinced of it. Most of my uh, biographies are about performing personalities. I'm particularly interested in that aspect of human identity, that idea of performing 
the way psychologists like Irving Goffman have written about it. Uh, I think that's it's really fascinating as it as it pertains to Faulkner. Oh, absolutely, and and influences on the work was I was it was such a, a random thing. I was near Christmas one year. I was home in West Tennessee, and a book was out as a bestseller. Oh man, this might have been all the way back in like 2007. The book is a is like a Christian self help book called The Purpose Driven Life, and my family comes from a fairly religious background, and uh, you know protestant west tennessee christianity and my aunt uh my aunt trish was talking about that book and someone said oh trish we'll get you this book for christmas and she said i don't want that book and i was like okay why not and her response was i don't have one purpose in life on different Mm -hmm. days i am different things some days i'm a mom some days i'm a you know dental hygienist her job some days i'm a uh, amateur writer. And so I just don't like the idea of there being one version of my life I'm supposed to lead. And that was yeah. an incredibly influential statement for me to hear <clears throat> because it, it got me thinking when I sat down to write about Faulkner that we don't have to have one singular, completely contained narrative of someone's life because no one's life is one single narrative where everything adds up to make like this completely defined person. Well, we yeah. are we are changing all the time in our lives. We, the Faulkner that lit that the, the 20 year old William Faulkner was a very different person than the 50 year old William Faulkner. Um, he might've been of two minds. I, 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 I drop a reference to the um, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird, just in a random place in the book. I was of what, like two minds, like two blackbirds in a tree um, that we are all capable of actually seeing the world on multiple levels and in different situations, having different senses of ourselves. And if those statements are true, then part of the art of biography is looking at the different ways in which a person would have been able to understand themselves and then tracing how that narrative affects their life, even if it's not a whole life, even if it's just different moments where that sense of self emerges. That can, that can also be a, a way of thinking about like biography that, again, influenced my work. I, I, I do not in all intend for my book to be read as a refutation of Joseph Blotner. I actually hope that people who read my book will either go read Blotner or have read Blotner and will see these as two ways of looking at Faulkner or more when you start reading other biographies as well. That it's, I, I mean, again, Blotner has a lot of facts there that I'm not going to refute. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Blotner does not ostensibly read Faulkner's life in order to prove he's a heterosexual, he just sort of takes for granted that, of course, he would. That's be, right. Yeah, you know, and it's it's what Blotner knows exactly. You know, yeah, it's, it's like your experience reading Absalom. Absalom, you're responding to it from what you know, uh, and and someone from another. You know, you said you know you got attracted to Faulkner because it was it was uh, about you know people you thought you knew or were like people mm-hmm. you knew. And in my case, I was attracted to Faulkner because his characters were so different from the people I knew. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, the only the only other thing about Faulkner that really attracted me, and I, I didn't even realize this until the last couple of years when I started thinking about why am I attracted to Faulkner. In my own family's experience, the same thing has happened that happened in, in, in what happens to some of Faulkner's characters, particularly with Ike and going through his commissary books in Goodell Moses, so much of the family's history is not told or even suppressed. That, yeah, I, 
I agree with that. For me, as a Southerner growing up, I would just like, I just remember having a distinct moment where I recognized that my family, whom I love deeply, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm very much a, a, a mama's boy and very much like, I just very close to my family as a whole, like a good Southerner is supposed to be. Um, so I say this nicely. I realized that my family were not Sartoruses. So I had a, a moment where I was like, wait, does that mean we're Snopes's? <laughs> like, oh no <laughs> like and so I, I sometimes like oh no what we have to, i need to talk to people we've got to do better uh so that was sort of my experience there are a few good snopeses not many this, this is this is true this is this is true we're we're, we're we're the ones who sort of were cast off of the other snopes family we would just wanted to sit down and, and make a good life for ourselves but um i recognize sort of in in sort of those like the tinker figures like the ratlets and others um and those sort of subsidiary figures who were just living their lives there in Yakutafa County. I recognized a great deal of, of people who their, their stories and their mode of storytelling and their sort of grand sense of self. That's also very much rooted in the humility of being from dusty crossroads in the South. Um, I recognized members of my own family sort of sense of self that was both grand and marvelous, but also very much just tied to knowing that they're just, you know, maybe the king of this little local cotton field or something like that. Um, and I was just I've always been infatuated with that. And of course, when Faulkner's character, some of his great novels are epically tragic in some of the most profound traditions of that of that term with the big capital T. Um, I, I certainly don't mean to claim that my family is, 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 has that kind of Southern history, but I love that in, on the stage through which he lets his main characters, you know, swell their progress, the Darls and the, the, uh, the Darl Bundrens and the, and the Quentin Compsons and others. It's so much to me, the surrounding world that he creates that just feels so real and so recognizable. And to go back to that statement about actual and apocryphal, that's where I see that that set shift shifting back because he has a real world to base his his fiction in. And those are ways in which the apocryphal great grand stories that feel like Greek myth also feel very much like they could happen in any town anywhere. So, yeah, very much so. So here, here I am waxing poetic about William Falk. <laughs> Thanks for that opportunity on a Saturday morning, Carl. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything I should have asked you? Oh, I mean, no, I, 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 I'm more than happy to keep talking about the book. It's a, it's always a joy to talk about it. It came out almost two years ago now. And so I've, after it's come out and I've had some time to let it sort of breathe like a good bottle of wine. Um, I, I've, my own opinions of the book and sort of what it's done have changed in a positive way. I've always really loved the project. Um, but now it's it's been out enough that I'm starting to get the response and see sure. yeah. that I've done something that I'm I'm very proud of. Well, I'll um, tell you so. I'll tell you about one response. Uh, this was on Twitter when I announced that I was going to do this with you, oh. and you get this on social media all yeah. the time. Uh, <laughs> one of my respondents was outraged by your book. I hadn't read your book, but was already outraged by it. And this person was outraged by it because you called it Gay Faulkner. And this person actually said, uh, well, how would uh, uh, Philip Gordon feel if, if we had a book called Nazi Philip Gordon? And I tweeted back and I said, uh, well, I don't see those as equivalent terms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Nazi and gay don't seem the same. Yeah, and the more well, I, I thought about what, what that, yeah. what's behind a comment like that, 
is the notion that a person owns his or her life. And therefore the biographer, as Boswell once said, is on a presumptuous task. You know, taking someone, someone people feel, well, I own my own life. How dare this person uh, suggest something otherwise? And yet you've given all sorts of reasons why that's the case. <laughs> why, you know, and as I said, and what I did say this person on Twitter, I said, when I write my biographies, the subject doesn't dictate to me what, what the title of the book is or what my interpretation is. That's the whole point of biography is it's not autobiography. It's, it's interesting because certainly in the, in the, in, in LGBTQ plus communities, there is a very vigorous debate about the, uh, whether or not it's appropriate to out somebody who's not, especially after they've, after their death. Um, and I certainly am aware of that debate and, and think I thought about that a lot when I was writing the book. Um, my response there is, you know, I do explain the difference between gay Faulkner versus was Faulkner gay. Yes. Um, uh, but also that like, I feel like the issue, some of the issue with that question or that, with that, with that challenge of how dare you out someone after they're, after they're dead is it arrives from the history of the sense that the word gay is somehow this horrible pejorative. And if you say it about somebody, you're undermining their reputation. Whereas I think generally by this point in history, more often than not, people recognize it's not a pejorative. Well, uh, and also one can celebrate, one can celebrate someone's life by being my, honest and open about it. So when my wife and I were doing a biography of Susan Sontag, some people said um, it was generally known that she, she was a lesbian. But uh, they said, you're not going to say that, are you? And I said, well, of course we are. Um, <laughs> how, how can, you know, it's part of her identity. It's part of who she is. Uh, we have to do it. And they said, well, she'll sue you. I said, now think about this. Susan Sontag is going to sue us because we say she's a lesbian. How are we being pejorative by doing yeah. that? It, it just, the more I thought about it, the more ridiculous that is. So, Carl, this just is a side note. I know you're an incredibly prolific writer and biographer, so I don't always know all the different biographies you've worked on, but I'm sitting here thinking that as soon as we're done here in a little bit, I'm definitely going to look up your biography of Sontag and read yeah. it. So like, oh, you wrote a biography of Sontag? Okay, well, that's this summer. That's this, that's this winter breaks reading. Got it. Thank you very much. <laughs> make, make sure you get the revised and updated version because that's we, we finally got into an archive that had not been open at the time oh, we awesome. first did the biography. University Press of Mississippi has, has published the revised and updated version. Oh, okay. How did I? Oh, yeah. wow. I can't believe I didn't, I didn't know about that one. But, yeah, um, no, it's okay. It's all right. But no, I, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned that because, yeah, the notion of like being, being sued or something by an estate or something for making a statement. And I isn't like, I, on the one hand, if they do that, I guess like your book would get a lot of publicity. It would. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I, I agree with you that there's sort of like a, this, it's not, it's not like you're saying something evil or negative about this person. You're just exploring what's there. Uh, what's, right. yeah. Especially when that person writes about issues which are of tremendous importance to gay people, like AIDS. Oh yeah, I and mean, this is this is Susan Sontag we're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> um, those metaphors. Come on. Yeah, that's I, that's a, a heck of a book, and it reminds me of, of like again, sort of the controversy surrounding, say, one of Faulkner's contemporaries, Willa Cather, who had whose estate had an embargo on on being on what could be quoted that was very relevant to the fact that she was clearly an out lesbian versus the 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 way in which for years upon years biographers 
just tiptoed around that subject or outright denied it yeah. until finally people just said, no, this is in the archive. And it was finally released letters that she had written when she was younger that are much less hard to say are just ambiguous. Um, and I mean, I, I think about that in the context of Faulkner because they are such close contemporaries, even if they didn't per se know each other. Um, I certainly think they read each other. I, I would definitely argue that. And that was um, that um, that the 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 process of Willa Cather's publicly being outed in a positive way was actually occurring between finishing my dissertation and the revisions for the book. Um, and I had that in mind an awful lot about the ways in which biography biography again i think as you mentioned earlier that we're, we're constantly sort of changing and, and evolving and, and revising our understandings of these folks and and you know just to give a shout out to jen chaplin again it was in february a month after of 2020 a month after my book came out i reached out to jen to say hey you found some archival materials for me years ago my book's about to be published and i just wanted to say thanks to which she responded, well, cool, my book's about to be published too. And she had found archival <laughs> material on, on Carson McCullers um, that she just chose to, to publish with a, with a uh, commercial press. Um, so it's not, it's the way in which she had to use materials and, and whatnot were, was different. And she makes it much more of a personal memoir experience of finding data and, and understanding her own identities through Carson McCullers. But it still is nonetheless its own sort of like biographical reconstruction that's trying to ask people to just think more broadly about the ways in which we presume things about these lives and don't be afraid of these assumptions that have traditionally been seen as pejorative, but might actually finally be worth bringing literally out of the closet, so. Yeah, you've given us a lot to think about. We'll have to do a part two. <laughs> yes, girl, I'd be more than happy to. So. Well, it, it's been wonderful talking to you, Pip, and, and we really will do it again at some point. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Carl. I appreciate it. Okay. I'll be posting this soon. All right. Thanks. Sure. Bye-bye.